go ahead and just say again, it's so good to see you this morning here with us. It's, it's good in just the simplest sense to not be preaching all by myself and, and to myself or to my kids. and They hear that enough. But it's good to see you guys here this morning. Um, this morning, this story picks up right where last week left off. That's one of the beauties of this Bible reading plan as we go through. And I don't know about you, but I'm always excited and looking forward to, to what's coming next and what's ahead. And so last week, we, we saw that God sees and knows. Well, several weeks ago, we saw that God sees and God knows. And that brought us quite a bit of comfort. We also saw that God rescues. And not only does God rescue us from the oppression of the, of the man, Pharaoh, but he also rescues us from the oppression of Pharaoh's rules. We looked at the Ten Commandments and how God in Egypt, he rescued them from Pharaoh, but now at Sinai, he was going to rescue them from the rules that, that, that Egypt had imposed on them and taught them. So he begins to say, this is a more beautiful way. This is a more excellent way. This is, this is what you've been experiencing is so, so, so gross and nasty. So let me show you life the way that it's supposed to be lived. And so he lays out for, for them the Ten Commandments. And he asks them before, he says, will you enter into a covenant with me? Will you agree to be my people and to follow my laws and the Israelites say, yes, of course we will. little hesitation, right? God begins to lay out, well, this is what I'm asking of you. He says, you'll have no other gods before me. He said, you'll not make yourselves any idols and not even a representation of me. He said, you'll, you'll not misuse my name. You'll remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. You'll honor your father and your mother. You're, you're not going to murder. You're not going to take life. You're not going to oppress folks. He said, you're not going to commit adultery. He says, you're not going to steal You're not going to give false testimony. You're not going to lie about people, especially when it has to do with your personal gain. He says, you're not going to covet. As the children of Israel hear that, I know that they're thinking that, what what an interesting way to live your life. I mean, think about that. If you'd never heard those before, you're like, well, wouldn't it be nice if I didn't have to worry about people stealing things from me? Wouldn't it be nice if I didn't have to worry about uh, my spouse being unfaithful to me? Wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it be really nice if we only had to worry about one God and that God was good and he wanted us to rest and not to get from us? The children of Israel began to bask in that beauty and the glory of this vision that God was casting for them. And he was saying, this is who I am and this is how you'll approach me. So they loved it. I imagine that this was an exciting time for them. And it lasted all but just a few moments, it seems. As you know, the story doesn't stay that way. It doesn't stay with them just basking in the glory of God, worshiping him and saying, yes, we'll do these things. It doesn't stay there long, at least, the, at least from what we can tell. These laws are beautiful. We began to see a taste of how, what, what they had been experiencing in the past and how there was hope for them in the future. There they are at the base of Mount Sinai. Moses goes up the mountain to meet with God and God's going to give him some more information and flesh out more of these laws and And while he's gone, that's where the story picks up. So Moses is up on top of the mountain. I want to invite you to read with me this morning. Exodus chapter 32, verses 1 through 14. The scripture will be on the screen if you're welcome to read that there, but also uh, use your own. We're going to be reading out of the English Standard Version, chapter 32, verses 1 through 14. The Bible says, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together with Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are on your ears of your wives and your sons and of your daughters and and bring them to me. And so all the people, they took off their rings of gold that were in their ears and and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from from their hands and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink. And they rose up to play. Verse 7 says, And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. And they have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. 
And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? And why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains, to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I promised, I will give to your offspring. and They shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of, bringing upon his people. God bless the reading of his word. Would you pray with me this morning? God, we thank you for your scriptures this morning. As we look at them, we understand a little bit more every day as we read. We understand a little bit more about you, about your character, about what you require of us. Father, in in that same turn, we learn more about ourselves. What a beautiful picture, fitting picture, I should say, this passage and of of us as a people even this morning. How quickly we turn from you. God, we pray that we would be encouraged this morning, that we would be convicted, where we're strained from you, where we've turned from you. But ultimately, Lord, we pray that you would be quick to mercy, slow to anger, continue to be patient with this, your people. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. As we look at this passage this morning, I want to draw attention to what I would think is the main emphasis, and that's this. While God's people are quick to return to their sins, God is slow to anger and quick to forgive. I'll say that again. While, people, while God's people are quick to return to their sins, God is slow to anger and quick to forgive. We'll look at three different sections. Verses 1 through 6 we'll look at first. It's the offense of the people, the sin of the people. We'll move through that into the second set of verses, which will be 7 through 10. That's the wrath of God. We'll see the wrath of God clearly here. We'll unpack a little bit about that. What's actually taking place there? Why would God be angry? The third section, and we'll end here, is the intercession of Moses, verses 11 through 14. And so let's begin with the offense of the people, verses 1 through 6. It's sad. It's an accurate commentary. As we look at this people here, we see how quick they turn from serving God. How quick they actually turn from serving God. They had just seen all of the miracles that God had done in their lives. Think about that. We've just walked through all the magnificent things that God has done. And now just this quick, they've turned against him. They had just agreed to enter into a covenant with God. They had just agreed to the Ten Commandments here. And right after that, Moses heads up the mountain and they've forgotten so quickly. They grow restless. And by restless, I mean that they choose to sin against Yahweh. There are wicked choices that they make here in this passage this morning in Exodus 32. It's, It's similar to a husband and wife who have just been married and they go on their honeymoon. And on that very trip, one of, the, one of them becomes unfaithful to their spouse. Immediately, before the ink has even dried on the paper, so to speak, they've already broken the covenant. It's a terrible sight. I want to point out one thing about their sin, and I think I want you to keep this in mind. As, as you read this, realize that this is a commentary on us today. Oftentimes, as we read the paper, as we read the, even the scriptures, we think, well, this is not us. This is not me. I'm not made from that. I'm not anything like that. The person that thinks that this morning, take heed lest you fall. Consider as you look at the fall, the sin of the people of God here, and consider your own life. The first thing I want you to see is that it was quick. Look at verse 1. It says, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. And as for this Moses, the man who has brought us up from the land of Egypt, We don't know what has become of him. So the the people become restless as soon as Moses is gone. And you can kind of relate to that, can't you? It helps when you see. It helps when you see God. It helps when you see him working. It helps when you see the man or woman of God or the person that you are associating with that work that he's doing in your life. It helps when you see them. And it's difficult suddenly when that's not there, isn't it? They become restless. They're worried. 
And it's interesting that they say this Moses. That's actually a derogatory term. They're speaking down about Moses. They're saying, what? This is some sort of a lemming. He's walked off and fell into a ditch and hurt himself somehow. He's gone. Where is he? I don't know. This Moses. Can't count on him. As if Moses, of all the things that he's just led them through, that he's just, God just worked, they forget all of that as well. And they think maybe he's just taking his sweet time. We don't have time for that. They say, we want the blessings that God has promised us. See, they wanted those blessings. They wanted to be led into the promised land. That's what they're after. They become impatient. They say, up, make us gods. Immediately, we need something to lead us. Think of St. Augustine who said in his confessions, that ancient book, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. The children of Israel had not found their rest in God. And so they were restless. They needed something. I want to ask you this morning, are you restless? You re- have you found the blessed assurance that God has offered? If not, perhaps your heart is restless today. Perhaps you sense that even now. That your heart is restless. And as you sense that, as you see that, turn to the Lord. Don't turn away. The children of Israel, in their, in their restlessness, they turn away from God in a quick fashion. This quick turn of events, it indicates that, that sin has an intense lure on the people of God. So there's a warning for you. You might think that you're so much better than the children of Israel. I know I've tempted, been tempted to think that. I remember as a child hearing this story thinking, how could they do that? After they had just come through all that they had and God had met every single need, how could they turn their backs on God? Yet, I think we're not realizing the temptation here is very, very strong indeed. And how desperate our hearts are and capable of manufacturing wickedness at an amazing rate of speed. It's quick. It happens so fast. In our daily lives, we would do well to be mindful of this and to realize that we are just a moment away. We're just a, a second away from, the, from succumbing to the power of sin, to the lure of sin in our lives. Be on guard. It happens so quick. Another thing I want you to see, not only was it quick, but it was repulsive. It was absolutely repulsive. Proverbs chapter 26, verses 11 through 22. If you're not awake yet, you will be in just a moment. Proverbs 26, 11 to 12 provides us a, a beautiful, where I say clear word picture of what's actually taking place here. Verse 11 and 12, it says, like a, go- like a dog that returns to its vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Like a dog who returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Verse 12, it says, do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. We think of vomit, hate to be gross this morning, but we think of that as dirty, as unclean. It needs to be cleaned up. It needs to be thrown away. It needs to be out of our sight. We don't want to be around it. And yet our little honorary members of the family, the four-legged friends that we cuddle with, that we allow to lick our faces, right? They don't have enough sense to not return to their own vomit. It's such a clear and gross picture for us this morning doesn't that want to make you want to race home and cuddle with little Fido this morning and watch the snow fall as you consider what it returns to it doesn't have enough sense to stay away from the very thing that its body has expelled and said that this is not good I'm not a doctor but I know this that if you around here they may say get sick right if you get sick and you expel something toss one's cookies If that takes place, it's because you don't want that. You don't need that in your body. And the stomach has enough sense to reject it, and oftentimes the brain does not have enough sense to stay away. What was originally ate was not good. Maybe even killing the animal, doing damage. That's the same thing when a fool returns to what was killing them, what was harming them, and they return to their foolish ways. The Bible says there's more hope for a fool than for somebody who uh, thinks they're wise in their own eyes. So God had rescued them. Think about this. God had rescued them from their weak gods and their evil taskmasters. He had rescued them from that. They were gnawing on that bone. And in that place, and God took them, rescued them out of there. And what did they do? No sooner than he had turned, turned their back and spent time with Moses, they were choosing to return to Egypt. They were choosing to return, if you will, to their vomit, to their sin. What's sad is that they didn't even realize that they were doing it. Didn't even realize what they were doing. So 
We look at a dog and we think, well, that's foolishness. We look at somebody who's maybe struggling with a sin that you're not struggling with. Maybe it's some type of a narcotic or alcoholism or pornography, whatever it is. And you say, that's, that's different. I see that. I understand that. But there's other sins in our lives that we don't actually see that it's the same, right? We don't realize that it's hurting us. We don't realize that this is not good for us. And yet time and time again, we return to them. We think that this is it's not hurting me. I don't see any damage to my person or to my being, be either physically or spiritually. And yet that's not an indicator. What is an indicator of what is damaging to us is the law of the Lord. And it is pure and it is true and they've turned from it. As we see this morning, they've returned to their folly. So it's actually very repulsive, the actions that we see this morning. It gets even worse as we look, but it, not only was it repulsive, but it was rebellious. Repulsive and rebellious and this rebellion that the children of Israel were experiencing, that they were act, enacting, was not a rebellion against a tyrant. Oftentimes we think of rebellion in a good way because we like Star Wars, right? I rebel. We think we're, we're all about the rebellion. And the rebellion, in that sense, is against a tyrant, against evil, the manifestation of it. That's not what we see taking place here. We see rebellion against a holy God, and not just a holy God, but a God that rescues, a God that loves, a God that is full of mercy and long-suffering. They rebel against him. And the symbol of a deified bull was apparently pretty common in those days. And so, in fact, Apis was a God that they would have been familiar with and represented in Egypt by, uh, by a bull. He's the God of fertility. So it's possible that Aaron, as he gathers this gold and he makes this calf, he, it's possible that he's thinking of Apis. Either way, it's not clear Many theologians are, are, are unclear and they're not certain. They don't agree as to whether they're really trying to make a new God or whether they're just trying to make a representation for Yahweh. I think they're trying to make a representation for Yahweh. But either way, what's taking place is they've either broken the first commandment or they've broken the second. There's no two ways around it. So they're in, 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 in clear rebellion against the Lord. I don't know what they're thinking. And you, you might be thinking, well, one out of ten ain't bad. They've not broken the rest. Right? They've, they've only broken one so far. Oftentimes that's what we think. And we think as if God would be pleased with us. Well, we've kept nine of your laws. We did pretty good. And God's like, I, th- I think this is good. They, I, think, I, think they're, I think they're pretty righteous. No, that's not how God thinks. That's not how God works. That's not, that's not how the law works. So they had broken one of the chief commands that God had given. I want to encourage you with this. A slight disobedience from what God has commanded is full-on rebellion. A slight disobedience from what God has commanded is full-on rebellion. Just a moment ago, I was speaking with some students, some of the children here, and I said, hey, let's not be running in the hallway. One little boy, the smallest of them all, looking right at me, straight-eyed, just excited, yes, yes. And as soon as we put our hands in the middle and broke, he took off running down the hallway, right? He's a cutie. But listen, he, he, he listened, he paid attention, and he'll follow every other law, but he's not going to stop running. And, and that slight disobedience, what is it? It's, still, it's rebellion, as cute as it is. But God doesn't look at us and say, well, hey, one out of ten ain't bad. Hey, he, he, he obeyed half of what I've asked him to do. No. It's full-on rebellion. And what would they be thinking here that they would be able to somehow combine the worship of Yahweh with pagan worship that God had outlawed? What made them think that they could do that? I want to pause and I want to apply that and make some applic- draw some applications in our lives. But before we do, I want to continue moving on. It didn't just happen here. This is, this is the first time that we see the children of Israel full on rebelling against the commandments of God. But it's not the last time, to be sure. As a matter of fact, this was an actual a pretty common occurrence that the children of Israel, the people of God, his chosen people, would rebel. And not just rebel, but that they would mix different ways of worship. What he had called them to worship the way, the method, and then mixing it with others. In the 10th century, when Solomon had passed and Rehoboam was taking the throne and leading the 12 tribes, they have a, they have a council there together and, and they're saying, are you going to take it easy on us? Are you going to be easier on us than your father was? And Rehoboam, under the counsel of his not very good counselor, says, no, it's going to be worse. It's going to be harder. And at that moment, in the 10th century, the, kingdom's, the kingdom of Israel divides into two, the northern and the southern Jeroboam comes to the rescue and he leads the northern tribes. One of the issues that he has is he doesn't have control of Jerusalem. He's got the majority of the people on his side, but he doesn't actually have control of the holy city Jerusalem. And so what he does 
in order to try to pull everything back together, in order to try to draw folks to himself, the the southern tribes, back to him, what he ends up doing is setting up this all-new, well, slightly different, we should say, but all-new religion with Samaria now as its capital. And now you can worship God. There's another holy city in Samaria. He's afraid that as his folks, as his people make the pilgrimage back to Jerusalem, for Passover, that they will begin to, to, to submit themselves to Rehoboam. So he begins to modify the way that they would worship Yahweh. And that's just one instance. And God says, this is, this is not acceptable. And by the way, this isn't a gray area for them. That It's just kind of unclear. Maybe you're allowed to do this. Maybe you're not. Maybe this is. No, it's very, very clear what they've done. An, an outright sin. It was full-on rebellion against God. And did you notice what happens after the feast, by the way? Aaron says, hey, I'll tell you what, let's throw a feast for, for Yahweh. He actually said, let's throw a feast for Yahweh in, in front of this bull. And so they make this altar and they say, tomorrow we're going to celebrate. We're going to have a feast for the Lord. And so this begins to take place the next morning. And what does it say takes place right after they eat and after they drink? It says they rise up to play. If you grew up in church, if you have a background there, you're maybe thinking like, hey, this is like a potluck. Yeah, they, they had a preacher that they shouldn't have been listening to. They did some things that, you know, were kind of a little bit weird, but now it's like, you know, it's just a typical potluck lunch, and now they're going to get up and play volleyball and horseshoes. And that's not what's taking place. That's not what they're doing. It says they rise up to play. It's a very sinful, licentious play that's in, that's in mind here. Very sexual openness. And in this, in this fact right here, and what, what's taking place, is actually a breaking of the seventh commandment. To be very clear, they're committing adultery. So I want to point this out to you. Oftentimes we think that when we break one law, that's all we're going to do. That this is, this is how far we're going to go. And the warning is for the Christian this morning, just like the old preacher would, used to say, sin will take you farther than you wanted to go. I only wanted to go this far, and it, yet it's taken me a little farther. Sin will only cost, it'll, it'll, it'll cost you more than you want to pay. It'll keep you longer than you want to stay. This is the truth about sin. And so the people, they say, well, we just wanted to worship a God. We wanted to worship an idol. We needed to see something. As they break this law, they begin to break others. Romans chapter 1 confirms this for us, that this is a slippery slope. When we exchange the truth of God for a lie, he gives us over to whatever. We desire to be back in Egypt, when we desire for that sinfulness to reign in our lives, God gives us over to that and we reap the rewards of it. Remember this contrast between the, what all that is gross and terrible in this world, where that comes from. In contrast, think of the beauty, all that is beautiful in this world that we celebrate, that we enjoy. This is the law of God or the law of the world. And so the children of Israel they break one command, they break another. They slip into licentiousness and utter outright rebellion against the Lord. Not only was it rebellious, but it was also outrageous. As you think about it, you think, well, this is just, this, how could this even take place? This is a crazy turn of events. And I, I, want, I want to remind you, don't forget, they had just seen the plagues in Egypt. They had just seen the, the, the power of the, of the bull be slain in the field. God had just destroyed everything and every, all the, 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 the gods that were represented there. Utter outrageous. Utterly outrageous. Think about the fact that, what does Aaron say? Look, skip down to verse 21. Moses comes down the mountain and he confronts Aaron. Moses says to Aaron in verse 21, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? What have they done? Why would you, why would you do this to them? Why would you lead them in this way? Aaron defending himself in verse 22 says, Let not the anger of my Lord burn burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. And as for this, this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take of it. And so they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. You notice how Aaron's talking here? It's, it's outrageous. You know, everybody's snickering and laughing, and we don't know whether to laugh or to cry. Because this is, this is, this is foolishness. What is he doing here? Well, he, he's speaking all, clearly on all of the things that are true and that are indictments against, against the people, right? Did they come to him? Yes. Well, Aaron didn't leave that part out. Very clear. They came to me. That's true, right? Did, were they really concerned? Yes. He made sure 
That they said, did they say some kind of a smart out comment about Moses being gone? Yep. Did Aaron include that in his, in his uh, assessment? Yes, he included that as well. He's very clear to do that. Did, was he clear to, when he said, uh, hey, you, I tell you what we'll do. You bring me the gold and I'll make us a calf. No, left that part out. Details get a little bit, uh, a little bit fuzzy there. You know, I don't really remember exactly what was taking place. It's kind of a crazy day. It was so long ago. Moses was like, it was yesterday, right? And says, I, I don't know what's going on. Have you ever found yourself in a situation like that? You've been confronted with something that you've done. Maybe you've actually led somebody to do wrong. Maybe it was in a relationship between a, your significant other and you were confronted about it. Maybe you were you tempted to push the blame onto somebody else. Fathers, mothers, as you consider the way that you've led your families, if the Lord were to confront you about that, who would you, who would you push, point the blame to? Would you point it to somebody else? It's oftentimes our play we justify ourselves. We say, I-, I wasn't angry until you made me angry. Maybe you've said that before. That, even in that statement, it's almost as funny, isn't it? As we think about, well, I just threw it into the fire and it just came out. I wasn't angry. They made me angry. Right? Or I, I wasn't like this until you came along. Our finances weren't like this until you began to do this. Or I've, I'd never done this until you came around. Oftentimes we push the blame onto somebody else. We're not the ones responsible. We justify what we've done. We, we justify the wrong that we are doing. Maybe perhaps even Aaron really is confused. Perhaps you've been in that place too, in the middle of a fight with your spouse or with some friend. You really are having a hard time seeing their side and how you've contributed to whatever situation you found yourselves in. I want to encourage you to take a step back and to really, really consider how, how you've contributed to the situation that you found yourself in. There's so many takeaways for us here in this passage. We don't have time to, to really dig them all out, but they're definitely there. Let me just share this last thing as we move before we move on. It, it's shocking how illogical our minds can be when we find ourselves trapped in idolatry. It's shocking how illogical we can think when we're worshiping something that's not other than God. How we can justify the actions that we take and the sin that we commit. One sin upon another leading to another and we justify every bit of it in some form or fashion. Shocking. It's all idolatry. Look at verse 4. They said, these are your gods. The people say, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. This is idolatry. Looking at it, some type of an icon or some type of figure, and they're ascribing the works of God to that figurine. And God says, that's not going to that's not gonna fly. That's idolatry. And you say, well, I've never worshipped an idol. I've never bowed at the feet of any calf. And yet, how many times have we said something like this? You've, how many times have you heard a whisper, Behold, your offspring who never disappoint. You've said that maybe about your, 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 your children who bring you glory, and you say, they'll never disappoint. Maybe you've heard something like this, behold, my girlfriend, who will never leave me. Maybe you've said that as well. Maybe you've said something like this, behold, my new electronic device that will guide me into all truth. We ascribe these things to, that, that are actually truths about God, that God will never leave us. God will never disappoint us. God will never abandon us. We ascribe these things to some device or some person. We look at our new clothes and we say, this will give me value. This will make me desirable. This job, it is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It will always be steady for me. We look at the things that we, the situations that we are in and the things that are around us and we ascribe to them what should only be ascribed to God. We try to receive from them what should only be received from God. Again, as you think it through the mind of a child hearing this text for the first time in the 20th century, you think, well, nobody would ever really believe that an idol could do that that a calf could could who would who would say that and yet we do it all day long we live our lives as if the point of our lives and the the reason we live is this item or that item or this situation or this or that or this person or that person whatever it is and it's utter idolatry so while you would never bow the knee to a golden calf in the wilderness is there something in your life church that you would say yes this is something i'm struggling with This is an idol that I kneel at the foot of. Whatever it is, confess that. Repent. 
So Moses slams the tablets on the ground. I love how when he gets down, he, God tells him what's taking place, and so he, he eventually gets down there, and he, he slams the tablets on the ground. He's angry. He's frustrated with the people. These are the people that he had been leading. Throws them on the ground. What about God? What's God's response? Moses is angry. What about God? Is, is God indifferent? Does God just utter love in that moment? Does he overlook it? No. What does what God experience? What do we see from God? We see wrath. We see wrath. Verse number nine, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. So we see the wrath of God in verses seven through ten. Verse nine says, I have seen, I have seen. That statement just a few weeks ago brought us comfort, didn't it? As we were encouraged that God is a God that sees and knows. That God is a God that looks down from heaven and he sees his people and he sees what they're going through. He sees how people have offended them and, and hurt them and attacked them and oppressed them. And sinned against them and God says, I see that and I know. And how comforting it is to us as we realize that. That God sees us when we're being wronged. He sees us when we need his help. And we went on to see a few weeks later that he comes to us. He rescues us. And now that same God that sees when we are oppressed, that brings us anxiety as we realize that he sees us in our sin. He sees us and knows exactly what's going on in your life. You see, you can hide it from your spouse. You can hide it from your children. You can hide it from your boss, from your neighbors. You can hide it from your church. But you cannot hide from God. God is the God who sees and knows it's interesting that God is up on the mountain with Moses and the people are down at the foot of that mountain they fall into sin they they be, they choose to sin and what takes place God stops he speaks to Moses very clearly and he says the people have broken the covenant they've sinned against me even now and Moses how, how, how would you know that he's the he's the God that sees and knows and so this morning Wherever you've been and whatever you've been involved, whatever you're currently involved in, that breaks God's law. It's against the Lord this morning. He knows. And as we sit in that moment, you think, well, that's causing me anxiety. Well, it it should. God is a God of wrath. There's good news. We We won't stay here too terribly long, but we need to realize that God has teeth, so to speak. In this day and age, we want to remove that from him. We want to say that he's just a God of love, that God is indifferent to the sins that are against him and that a a, a God that truly loves would not be a God of wrath. Many believers and Christians cling to that version of God. It's unbiblical. It's not true. So we first hear, when we first hear about the wrath of God, it it seems almost petty and childish and, and inconsistent with the doctrine of God's love because we know that God truly does love when we see him in situations like this, we think, well, he's just angry. He's just, this is pathetic. But I would encourage you this morning by saying that God is loving even in his wrath. God is loving even in his wrath. And forgive me for being frank, but if you think that the God of the Old Testament is a different God from the New Testament, then it's just an ignorant belief. I don't mean that in a rude way, just truthfully you, it's, you don't have a good understanding of what the Bible actually says. The God of the Old Testament and the God is the same as the God of the New Testament. He, he didn't grow up and mellow out and chill and just be like, you know what, I, those, are, those, are my, those are my 20s. I've chilled out since then. That's not what happens. We see God's wrath and love in the Old Testament. And we see God's wrath and love in the New Testament as well. And, and as I said a moment ago, I think we even see in God's wrath, we see his love. The Bible demonstrates that God's wrath is actually balanced by his patience and his love and his forgiveness. So you, you, I know that you can understand this. You've seen this in, in, in even in a, in a human way. As much as is possible, we, we look at our mothers and we say, our mothers, they both love us. They wake us with be- eggs and bacon and they gently rub our backs and say it's time to get up. But then if you leave the seat up, you better believe that mom, the wrath of mom will, be, will come alive. Right? Whatever it is, think about that one thing that just got your mom. Like, this is the one thing that just would really get her riled up. 
Right? That may be petty. It's not the same as God, but it, 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 it's helpful for us to see that even in a human nature, we see that we can have both love and wrath and forgiveness all bottled up in one. And the Bible demonstrates this clearly. God hates sin, and here's why. God, God hates sin. God has wrath, and here's why. Because it destroys his people. Because it destroys his creation, and he hates it. So we think of the petty mom that, in a sense, that gets upset because this, the seat's up. And boys, leave this, put the seat back down, right? We think how, how silly that actually is, but think about it, maybe not so silly. You think about the, the wrath of a mother when her child has been offended. Her child has been hurt. Fathers, oftentimes we become angry. Mothers, we become frustrated with our children and we, we, we lash out because we're selfish and we're angry. And that's not God, but sometimes we lash out and it looks similar. We lash out because we're, we're afraid for our children, because we want to protect them. Maybe the hand is going too close to the pot or maybe they're going to pull something down on them that could harm them and we, we cry out, no, stop! To the child, it looks like we're just angry at them and that we just, we just hate and we're whatever it is, but that's not the case. The love that we have, it it displays itself in wrath. It displays itself in anger, and we discipline even. Why? Because we love our children. So as we see this in a a human way, I think of it in a godly way. It's just a small picture of what God actually is. He hates sin. And he looks at it, and he says, this has enslaved my people for too long. It's going to stop. That's the way it was in Egypt, but it's not anymore. I'm setting my people free. I'm giving them a new law. They've experienced this, this horrid life. I want them to have a life to the full. And so his, in his anger and his wrath, he says, this isn't going to happen. I want to protect them. I want, to, I want, to, I want them to, to live a holy, godly life. He wants the best for his people. He wants to save us from what's gross and from what is foul. And so for all God's anger, though, and all of that, I also recognize the fact that he is slow to anger. He is more patient and loving than even your grandmother. God is full of wrath, yes, but he is full of love. He is full of mercy. Here, sometimes when we're buying something online, we'll read the Amazon reviews and we'll say, well, what have other people seen? What have other people experienced when they've had this product? And so uh, there's some funny ones out there. If you want some uh, encouragement later on, I can share some really interesting Amazon reviews in the future. But let's look at some of the ones that have been said, the reviews that folks in the past have given about God, specifically in the the Scripture. So there's a shepherd boy from Bethlehem. He actually became a king. You may have heard of him. But he wrote a review about God in Psalm 86, verse 15. He says, But you, O Lord... You are a God of mercy and graciousness, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's a guy that had sinned against God, that had broken God's law, that was not worth anything in the sight of the people of his day and his family. And yet God says, he says of God that he is merciful, gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He says something very similar to that again in Psalm 103. And in Psalm 145, it's a similar testimony, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. A disappointed world traveler in Nineveh, he writes another review about God in Jonah chapter 4, verse 2. He says this, and when he prayed, Jonah says, when he prayed to the Lord, speaking of himself, he said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah says, I knew that you'd do this. That's a whole different, Jonah was a, he was a piece of work. We don't have time to unpack this, but he's saying, I knew that you'd do this, God. That's just who you are. I'm not shocked. This is why I didn't want to preach this here, because I knew that you'd forgive them. I knew that you'd be merciful. I knew that you would relent of disaster. This is what Jonah said. Another review, a powerful political leader records of God. He had led, he, this, this particular man had led a, a people in the wilderness. It's, it's Moses. He says in Exodus chapter 34, 34 verse 5, he says, the Lord, or he, he quotes God speaking of himself, and he's agreeing here. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and, and sin, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So we see here that even Moses in chapter 34, we're in 32. 
We'll end here in just a moment in 34, but even Moses says that God is a God who is full of mercy. He's full of grace. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Do you see the theme here? People who have had even sinned against this God, Yahweh, are testifying that he is a God of mercy and that he is slow to anger. And so while there is wrath and God is justified in his wrath, he is also slow in his wrath. And we see it clearly in this passage, verses 1 through 14 in chapter 32. So God plans to destroy the people of Israel. If you see the news or you've read any of the New Testament, you realize that the Jews were not destroyed. God did not. Why? Because Moses interceded for them. Moses interceded to God and said, God, this, what you're planning to do, what you've just said, would you consider not? Verse number 11, the Bible says, But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent that he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised. I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. So initially God intends to destroy the people. And it actually would have taken place had it not been for Moses' intercession. I don't want you to come away from this passage thinking, well, God's just angry and Moses chills him, calms him down. That's not what's taking place here. Moses comes to God and he's saying, I want to remind you of some things as if God had forgotten. No. But he's saying this is, he's interceding on behalf of, of God's people. And he's saying, God, this, these things are true. You've promised this and you've promised that. God, according to your will, I pray that you would do what you've said you would do. As he does, God relents. I want to just take a moment and park and look at how Moses actually reacts. Imagine how you would have felt if you were leading the people of Israel out of Egypt, of Israel out of Egypt, and you had gone through all these amazing things, and right at the end, what do they do? Right, right, right after God has given the Ten Commandments, they, they break them. Wouldn't you be angry? You, you left them alone for one second. You, you can't do anything. Yet they had one job, right? And they couldn't even do that right. Aaron, what? Come on, man. What? Why did you do this? Imagine how angry you'd be. I, mean, I, th- I, I think about how my, me and my wife, we get the kids ready. We'll, we, we've, we've brought them through so much, right? The wilderness and the desert as we've just taken them to church. Or out to eat, and it's like you've got clothes, you've got dirt all over your clothes. You didn't even brush your teeth. What's the, what's the matter with you? you? Can't come on. We get so angry in those moments, and I want you to see what Moses does. Well, a- well, Moses is angry, yes, and he comes down the mountain and he gives them what for. But what's his first play? What's the first thing that Moses does when he hears of what's befallen the children of Israel at the foot of the mountain? What's he do? He intercedes for them. He intercedes for them. As soon as he realizes what's taking place, in a sense, he prays to the Lord. He begins to ask God on their behalf. And God even, I can imagine that as you read that passage, God says, now let me alone. Moses hasn't had a chance to speak. And God preemptively says, let me alone, that I may destroy these people. He could, even, he could already see it on Moses' face. He knew what, what Moses, how Moses was going to react. And Moses, not controlling or manipulating God, but praying according to his will, says, don't do this. This is what a man of God looks like. This is what a woman of God looks like. If you want to see that, this is it. If you've ever wondered, it's somebody who intercedes on behalf of God's people that goes to the Lord. Think about people in your life. Parents, think of your children. Do you consistently intercede on their behalf? Do you consistently ask God for blessing, for mercy in their lives, to draw them to to himself? Do you pray for that? Do you ask God relentlessly for that? This is the play of Moses. Do you, uh, when you think about political leaders in this country, and I don't want to make a political statement here, I just want to encourage you in this way. 
When is the last time a, a, a politician that you did not appreciate, you actually interceded for them? That you asked God to guide them? That you asked God to give them wisdom that when you saw them making a, a, a foul decision or taking the country or the city or the county in the, in the wrong way, that you've asked God to intervene and to have mercy on them. When's the last time that you've done that? Again, this is the play of the man of God or the woman of God, that we would intercede on behalf of others. Are you someone who intercedes? Are you someone who does that? Or are you typically thinking of yourself, the prayer that you need, the, prayer that, the things that you need in your life? Are you thinking and considering others in your day-to-day? Notice how Moses prayed, by the way. He wasn't asking for something that was out of God's way or out of God's, uh, even God's will, truly. He was praying according to God's will and for God's glory. That was his big concern. Is this, this, isn't, this isn't you. If you really did this, what would take place would, you wouldn't bring glory to yourself. It would actually be shame. As he says this to God, God says, yes, that's correct. And he relents. Notice in verse 30, it says, The next day Moses said to the people, he's come down off the mountain, he's kicked a bunch of people in the, in the, in the hind end, caused a, you know, shut down the riot, made them drink, the, he ground up the, the molten calf, and, and he made them drink it. They get it all settled. He, t- he, in a sense, stamps the fire out, the rebellion, and he says, all right, I'm going to go back up on the mountain. And in verse 30 he says, You have sinned a great sin. He says, now I'll go up to the Lord and perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. It's bad. God was really, really angry yesterday. And he said, so I'm going to go back up and I'm going to talk to him. And perhaps I can make atonement for you. Perhaps we can fix this. Atonement, this is a beautiful word. It speaks of God's acting in history to reestablish the original relationship between God and man. It's God dealing with man's sin. Notice how I said it's God dealing with man's sin. It's not man going to God. You see, Moses can make intercession, but he cannot make atonement. So he says, I'll I'll try. I'm going to go up to the mountain. I'm going to go talk to God, and I'm going to try to make atonement. And ultimately, God's wrath is subsided, and he he relents. I'm not going to destroy the people. But as Moses tries to make atonement, that doesn't work. It doesn't take place. Moses says, I'll go up the mountain and see if I can atone. And he can't do it. Time and again through this preaching um, series, we've talked about this idea that there's Abraham, but God's a better Abraham. And then there's, there's Isaac, and God's a better Isaac. There's Jacob. God's a better Jacob. Jesus is a better Jacob. We look at Joseph and we say, Joseph's a great guy, but Jesus is a better Joseph. If we look at Moses, we say, Moses is a great guy. He intercedes. Jesus intercedes. Moses tries to make atonement, but he can't. You see, Jesus is a better Moses as well. Jesus is a better Moses. Moses says, I'll try to make atonement. And Jesus says, I'll go up to the mountain and I will make atonement. Think about the fact that Jesus bore the cross, carried it to Golgotha was crucified, experienced pain on our behalf, died in our place, defeated death, hell, and the grave. And when he arose the third day, and all of these things point to this, the fact that he can make atonement for our sin. So as we think of the wrath of God that's upon us, that, that, the, that, the, that God both sees and knows our sin, and his wrath burns against it, consider this, that Jesus says, I will make atonement. Think of Colossians chapter 2, verse 14. It says, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances which were against us, which were contrary to us. He took it out of the way and nailed it to his cross. Jesus made atonement for us. He repaired a wrong. He fixed what was broken. So Moses loves the people so much that he's even willing, though, to give up his own life. He speaks there, and it's, you can even hear a hint of Jesus. And as Moses says this, he says, God, if you'll let me, if you're going to blot their, right, their names out of the book, blot my name out as well. Is there any way I can manipulate you, I can change your mind and pull you back to where you won't do evil against them, that you won't destroy them? It's, you can hear the echo of Jesus. You can hear the echo of Paul. He had a similar thought in Romans chapter 9. He says, I, I'm willing to be accursed. And be cut off from my own people, Israel, for the sake of my brothers, for my kinsmen. 
Moses, he can't barter with God in his own life. Why? Because Moses is a broken, fallen human being. Paul, he can't barter his life for another. Why? Because, Mo, because Paul, as, just like Moses, is a fallen human being full of sin himself who has broken God's law. He can't make atonement. And yet Jesus says, I, I can make atonement. I live the perfect life. I've never sinned against you. He lays his life down saying, I will make atonement. Moses is unable. Paul is unable. Jesus is able. He's able to atone for your sin this morning. So as we said a moment ago, the wrath of God, it burns hot against those who have sinned against him. Yet Jesus says, I will atone. So in anger, Moses slams the tablets on the ground. He comes down and he's, he breaks them. You might think, well, that's just Moses being angry. He, he, he needs to go to anger management. Maybe that's what you're thinking. And that's probably true. But Moses is making a statement when he breaks those on the ground. You think, well, come on, man. Those are still going to be good. We still could have kept them. There's a picture. Moses is making a statement and the people understood it. When those tablets broke, it was a symbol that it was null and void. That it was no longer valid. That they could still have that covenant with God because they had broken it. So in essence, we're going back to the fact that the, the, the illustration of the husband and wife that were on their honeymoon. And that very week, they were, the marriage became null and void. And it, that marriage certificate wasn't worth the paper it was printed on. It had been shattered. It had been broken because of infidelity. This is, what, this is what Moses is recognizing here. And so he slams them on the ground saying, this is worthless. You've broken the covenant with God. And that's not where I want to leave you this morning. You'll know from your reading plan in Exodus 34 that God, listen, God renews the covenant with his people. He renews the covenant with his people. He orders Moses, he says, hey Moses, cut out, cut out some more stone tablets. Bring them back up the mountain. We've got business. So Moses cuts, he prepares the tablets and he takes them to the top of the mountain. And what does God do? He prepares another set. He prepares another set. And in essence, he's saying that the covenant is renewed. It's back online. Jesus is able to make atonement. It's not here in this passage. We don't see it. As we look forward through the gospel lens, we see that God makes atonement for our sins through the blood of Jesus Christ. So while God's people are quick to return to their sins, fools to their folly, You see that God is slow to anger and he's willing to forgive. And I hope that that's an encouragement to you this morning as a Christian. God is willing to forgive. If you're an unbeliever this morning, I'm going to encourage you to to, to relish in that thought too as well. That you can repent of your sins and you can place your faith in Jesus Christ. And you too will have your sins atoned for by the blood of Jesus. That's good news this morning. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you this morning for the truth You're a God that sees and knows. And at times that brings us comfort and at times that gives us anxiety. As we're convicted of the sin that we've committed against you. God, and through all this, we are encouraged and lifted up as we know, as we see. Though Moses cannot atone for our sin, that our pastor cannot atone for our sin, that our mother, our grandmother, our father cannot atone for our sin, that the Apostle Paul cannot atone for our sin, that there is one that can. There's one that can make things right. So we thank you for that. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice on the cross. We make much of you this morning. Spirit, we pray that you would draw people to yourself this morning, even now, as we leave this place that you draw folks to yourself. Father, we pray that for the Christians that are gathered here this morning, that if there's sin in their lives, they would expose that. They would expose it knowing that you see it, that your wrath burns against it, and yet there is mercy and grace for them as well. We thank you for these truths. We make much of you this morning. We ask that these things be done in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen. Church, would you stand and worship the King in light of these truths?